Good evening, everyone. We are following today's breaking news out of Washington. Donald Trump, for the third time this year, entered a courthouse, stood before a judge and pleaded not guilty to his alleged crimes. Unlike the previous two instances, the location of today's arraignment tells its own story because the former president essentially returned to the scene of the alleged crime. The D.C. federal courthouse stands in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol, where Trump's efforts to subvert our democracy following his failed 2020 presidential bid culminated in the insurrection at that very building. Likely some of the same law enforcement officers who were out today providing protection for Trump's appearance were also called upon on January 6th to defend the peaceful transfer of power from a violent mob of Trump supporters. Brought there by the man who today was called on by a magistrate judge to answer to the four charges against him. Sitting just feet away from Trump as he entered his not guilty plea was special counsel Jack Smith. The last time the two were in the same room was Trump's previous arraignment in Miami. According to the pool reporter, Trump glanced briefly in Smith's direction when he walked in, but did not appear to make eye contact with him, nor did he appear to look at him again for the rest of the hearing. Trump in the courtroom today was stripped of the trappings of former office that he typically arrogates to himself. Magistrate Judge Moxila Opadiaya referred to him as Mr. Trump, not President Trump, as his fans, including Fox anchors, refer to him. The judge advised Trump of his rights and warned him in a stunning moment, for those of us who were following along, that his pretrial conditions include not committing any other crimes. The judge also warned Trump, quote, it is a crime to influence a juror and that a violation could lead him to being held pending trial. Yeah, that happened. The next hearing was set for August 28th before Judge Tanya Chutkin, who will oversee the trial. It is expected that a trial date will be set at that hearing. And counter to what Trump and the right wing circus want you to believe, these indictments have nothing to do with Trump's standing in the polls. It's about accountability, accountability for actions that Donald Trump took of his own free will, whether it was making hush money payments before an election to hide an affair with a porn star hoarding and refusing to return national security documents after leaving the White House, or, in the case today, entering into a conspiracy to try to overturn the 2020 election and the will of the American voters. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and former member of Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation, and Temidayo Aganga-Williams, former senior investigative counsel to the January 6th Select Committee. Thank you uh, all for being here. Uh, this was an extraordinary day. I think we can all uh, agree agree about that. Glenn, you were there. Uh, you were in the courtroom in the, I think you were in the overflow. So just give us sort of a sense and a feel for how all of this played out. You know, for the most part, it was a relatively routine arraignment but for the fact that a former president of the United States was being arraigned for trying to overthrow our democracy, not entirely ordinary there. I will tell you, Joy, the first thing that caught my attention was even before the hearing started, I saw Evan Corcoran walk in. Um, I don't know if there's been much talk about that, but Evan Corcoran is Donald Trump's lawyer who was compelled to testify about, and in a very real sense, against 
Donald Trump because he was the one who infamously, you know, certified that all documents had been returned from Mar-a-Lago to the federal government. And that was untrue. Of course, the crime fraud exception trumped, no pun intended, the attorney client privilege. And he was forced to testify, undoubtedly incriminating his former client, in that case, Donald Trump. I was surprised to see him show up. I don't know if there's a saying, keep your friends close and your former lawyers who have testified against you in the grand jury closer. But whereas he he recused himself, he he conflicted himself off of the Mar-a-Lago documents case. He was in the courtroom, you know, not announced as counsel of record, but sitting right there virtually shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump. I found that interesting. Um, and, and then from there, the other thing that I um, frankly enjoyed was when the magistrate delivered a message from Judge Tanya Chutkin saying um, the prosecutors will file in seven days their proposed trial date. The defense will file seven days thereafter their proposed trial date. And on the 28th of August, just 25 days from now, Judge Chutkin will set a trial date. I think that sets the tone. It sets the agenda. And, you know, Judge Chutkin, who I know from trying murder cases against way back in the day, um, she is strong. She is smart. She is fair. And she's no nonsense. And I think, you know, Donald Trump may have met his match at least procedurally in Judge Tanya Chutkin, who I think will give him a prompt and speedy trial. Now, really quick to stay with you for a moment, Glenn. The, the other thing that was we, where we were on earlier with Rachel uh, and friends um, that I thought was actually kind of interesting were the other judges who attended the hearing today. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there were some judges in the back of the courtroom. I heard the reporting too, Joy, but from where I was in the overflow courtroom, they didn't train the camera on that part of the courtroom. So, but I did hear that other judges showed up. I will even say in the overflow courtroom, Senior Judge Hogan, who I tried a lengthy RICO trial in front of, was was in there for a period of time. So there were a lot of judges and other magistrate judges like uh, Magistrate Judge Zia Faruqi, who were coming and going to kind of keep tabs on what was happening. Not surprising. I think the whole courthouse was a buzz and certainly the security surrounding the courthouse was was pretty significant. And it was a press presence outside the courthouse like I've never seen before. Uh, fascinating stuff. Let, let, let's come back uh, to the table here, Andrew. Uh, let's go through the things that, you know, you've done this a, a lot of times. Uh, how unusual some of these things were. The fact that a trial date was set, it was discussed. Is that normal for this kind of hearing? No. Um, to have at this is this is, as Glenn said, usually a pretty pro forma thing. I was um, as to Glenn's point, I had the exact same reaction. Um, Obviously, the government and the defense are very focused on the trial date. Um, yeah. It's everything for the for the defendant. He wants to not have facts and law matter, right? He wants to just talk in adjectives and adverbs and characterize the evidence and say it's all a witch hunt. He does not want a trial where people see facts and law. Um, so for him, putting it off is you know everything. This trial and all trials. Um, for the government, it is to get those facts and the law before um, a jury and the public. Um, and so to me, the fact that the judge said 
This is the briefing schedule, and I am going to decide this on the first day you appear. You will all have an opportunity to be heard because right. you have papers you will submit. But the very first court date, yeah. I am going to set a trial date. Terrible news. Um, I think the other thing I would expect because of that, the government, I think, before that date is going to be basically backing the truck up with discovery. <laughs> right. I, mean, the, I don't think there's going to be discovery disputes. There is going to be everything under the sun yeah. because they need to show up and say it's been done. Yeah. Um, because they want to be ready and to tell the judge we've done everything we need to do. Um, and they are, they'll be making a lot of good arguments about how much the, this defendant actually knows even before that discovery went out, yeah. because they have all the January 6th stuff. I, we're going to get into that in a minute. The, the, yeah. The, the, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there that yeah. we're going to get into. Uh, also, pro forma, yes or no, to warn the defendant, don't commit any more crimes and don't even try tampering with the jurors. And and saying, let me just tell you the most important thing, right. don't commit more crimes. Yeah. I was waiting for that to be, um, let me just tell you the most important thing, you should be out on bond it means yeah. you have to show up right. at the next court appearance because right. being out on bail is all about needing to appear. Yeah. Um, it is, it is a given guess. I mean, look, you need to tell somebody, by the way, if you commit a crime while you're out on release, yeah. guess what? You can go back in. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what happened to Paul Manafort. Right. He obstructed, went into jail. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know if this particular magistrate does that routinely, but let me just say I have never in my years as a prosecutor or defense lawyer ever heard that. And yeah. even for all of the Mueller cases, mm -hmm. never heard somebody be say, let me just single one thing out. But again, we, as we talked about, this is a defendant. When you look at his rap sheet, he has been charged now with six counts of obstruction of justice Four here. Yeah. Two in Florida, and he's got other crimes in Florida and in Manhattan. Yeah. So you can understand the judge saying, I need to warn you about something, because if you commit a crime while you are out on bail, guess what the, the remedy could be? Yeah. You're going to be you're going to be awaiting trial, but inside a jail cell. Uh, the, the, uh, Timmy Dyer, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is your first appearance. Um, I have to say there's been a lot of um, talk about this being a solemn day. And a grave day. I have to be honest. I, I, I admitted it on the previous show uh, with, with Rachel and, and, and our friends. I didn't feel solemn. I'm being honest. If I'm being honest, I didn't feel solemn because it, it feels like Donald Trump has been subjected to such disparate treatment in his favor for 77 years of his life, whether it's whether he's forced to pay taxes, not um, whether he's forced to abide by the rules that say you cannot profit from the presidency. That was not enforced. You could go on and on and on. And, and the arrogance of trying to eliminate the votes of people in seven United States, seven states, and say, we're going to negate your votes. We're going to replace them with our electors. We didn't like the result. We don't like your electors. We're going to use ours. Thanks for, for playing. That was so arrogant. And the people who showed up on January 6th were so arrogant and feeling they could defecate in the Capitol, tear the Capitol apart, beat up police officers and commit crimes while live streaming them and then go to their hotels, get on planes and go home and wait a year to be prosecuted. All of it feels so incredibly arrogant to me that I'm like, no, this felt like a day when we got justice just to see him humbled, not called President Trump, not given the weird deference that, you know, even some in the media give him. I thought it was actually a great day for America and I didn't feel solemn at all. But I wonder, as, as somebody who investigated, you know, sort of January 6th, it was involved in that process of telling the country in great detail 
what happened that day and what was done to us. I just wonder how this hearing struck you. I think the word that comes to mind is accountability. When we began our investigation, we decided we would follow the facts wherever they took. And after we all left our families, we came from all across the country, we came to D.C. and fully invested ourselves. And what we wanted was to be able to tell the American people what happened, who did what, and why they did it. And our report and our hearings, I think, did just that. And it gives me a big sense of pride to look how closely the indictment tracks the work of the committee. And I think what it shows, it validates the work we did and shows that we got it right. And I think now it's the, up to the Justice Department to continue our work. Did anything in the indictment surprise you? I think, it, I wouldn't say surprise, but I think it, it met expectations. Yeah. I think it showed that Jack Smith has been thorough. It shows that he's followed the evidence where it's taken him. And it showed him it's even gone further than the committee. For example, the indictment included a reference to Vice President Pence's notes. Yeah. That's something new. So I think what we'll find out as more discovery is turned over and this mm-hmm. case continues is that I would I would bet Jack Smith has even more under his sleeve preparing as he goes forward to trial. Yeah. One of the great disappointments during the January 6 hearings is that our former vice president, Mike Pence, uh, did not feel an obligation to his country to testify before that committee. Well, we're going to leave that aside for a moment. We're going to talk a little bit more about him later. Let's bring in NBC News senior Capitol Hill correspondent Garrett Hake, who was one of the few reporters who got one of those precious spots inside the, the courtroom uh, today for the arraignment. Uh, give us some of the color, because one of the things that I did find interesting, you know, and, and, I, and again, I thought was fitting, was the judge referring to Trump as Mr. Trump, uh, and her seeming sternness, uh, as you described it earlier when we spoke with you, um, and also the Jack Smith of it. So just sort of give us the full sort of color of what it all looked like and sounded like. Well, I was struck by that too, Joy, the kind of inversion of the power dynamics that I think Donald Trump is used to. I mean, this is somebody who spent four years as president. When he walked into a room, everybody else stood up. That's not the uh, dynamic when you're a criminal defendant. Instead, he's ordered to stand to swear, be sworn in. He's ordered to stand when the judge comes in. He is responding to another person who is telling him where he can go and what he can do. It's been the case in all of these arraignments. But it was notable today, the judge repeatedly referring to him as Mr. Trump, not President Trump, which is what he's used to in the environment in which he lives right now. That power dynamic, I think, was palpable. Now, I've covered all three of these arraignments in the courtroom, and I will say that Donald Trump has clearly gotten much more comfortable in this situation. In New York, he was sort of visibly nervous. He was tight. He was hunched over. He didn't look around the room. That was not the case today. So what's so unusual, I mean, just the sheer bizarreness of what we're even talking about here, a third arraignment for a former president, is starting to feel at least a little bit routine for the person being arraigned. So all of that struck me about the power dynamics. And the Jack Smith element of this has been fascinating to me, too, because the same dynamic existed in Miami as existed here today. Smith just a few feet away from Donald Trump, maybe 15 feet in this hearing room today. Trump clearly saw Smith when he walked into the room. They couldn't have missed each other. They were looking very much in the same direction. But after, I think, appearing to kind of like note his presence, tried very hard in the 15 minutes before the judge actually started the hearing to look everywhere else in the room except at Jack Smith. Smith had no such issue. He was watching Donald Trump very closely 
Every time he spoke, he was watching. I mean, he was clearly kind of staring at the former president, the man he just charged with trying to overturn the election. And then when Donald Trump left with his Secret Service entourage, Smith, once again, as he did after the hearing in Miami, kind of worked the room, made a point to shake hands and clap shoulders and kind of encourage and smile at even what appeared to be pretty junior members of his team. The way I described it earlier is Smith seems to be trying to create kind of a home game atmosphere here for the special counsel's office and the Justice Department that, you know, this may have been Donald Trump's city when he was president, but this is Jack Smith and the special counsel's turf in this federal courthouse. And that was certainly the feeling of being in the room today. Very quickly before I let you go, uh, Garrett, were were any family members of Trump's there and and have they been at any of these three hearings? No. And that has always stood out to me. In this hearing, there was one staffer, the press secretary for Donald Trump, was in there along with Secret Service agents. That's the first time I've seen anyone even from his campaign. But no members of his family have appeared in the courtroom with him at any of these arraignments. It's definitely something that stuck out to me uh, Mm. over the course of these last few months. Very interesting, Garrett Haake. Thank you very much. You got that golden ticket. And we appreciate you coming and sharing the info with us. All right. Our wonderful panel is staying with us for continuing coverage of a former president or just Donald Trump at this point. He's just a citizen. Latest arraignment. The readout continues after this. I am back with my panel, Glenn Kirshner, Andrew Weissman and Timmy Dayo Aganga Williams. Um, Let's get into this a little bit to quickly go to the judge. So the assumption is that the Trump defense is going to try everything, right? You've already had United States senators, uh, Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham attacking her and saying she's biased and saying she's got to be thrown off the case, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been the we can't get a fair trial in D.C. All of that's going to be litigated. Now, does that happen at the January 20 at the August 28th? Hearing what? How does this play out? Yeah. So the venue issues are one that the judge can take her time on. It's a dead loser. Um, that was an argument made in Watergate. Lost. Manafort made that argument. Lost. It's just not an argument to say I want to be in front of a jury where there are more Republicans. <laughs> right. Um, and also, if you're saying there's just too much pre-trial publicity in this case, that's true in any 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 courtroom in this country. Yeah. So that just requires having very careful jury selection. So that's just a loser. But that that won't be decided before, you know, August 28th. I do anticipate that there are these attacks on the judge, whether they even move to recuse her uh, based on uh, what really will be trumped up issues. Yeah. Um, they could try to do it. There's nothing at all that you know, I think that's going to go anywhere. Um, I think, you know, what's on August 28th, there is going to be a court appearance. Yeah. Um, and she, as she's indicated today, is going to be making a decision on the trial date that day after hearing from both sides. OK. And th- let's talk about this discovery of this issue, because one of the things we did talk about earlier is that the defense, the Trump defense wants to delay this trial as much as possible. They would love for it to be after the election, hoping he wins and then just throws everyone out and says, Jack Smith, you're fired. Right. That's what their ideal. They're going to try to push it, push it, push it. And the discovery issue they're saying is that there's a volume of material and there's so much. And you, as you said, they're going to back the Brinks truck up and, and dump it. But they're going to say, well, it's not enough. We need more time. I feel like the January 6th hearings were pretty thorough. <laughs> we kind of covered them on MSNBC. Uh, and and so it's a lot of it was public. I know there was some tension at one point about whether or not the January 6th committee was going to turn over information to the Justice Department. Refresh our memory. Ultimately, things were turned over. How much does the Justice Department have of the material that you all put together? 
Well, I think importantly, the committee turned over its evidence to the American public. I mean, yeah. looking over the hearings that we put on, that really tracks the indictment that Jack Smith has obtained. After our work was done, we also released the transcripts, which those depositions underpin the testimony that goes to the indictment. Yeah. So I think it's true that Jack Smith is going to be turning over various pieces of evidence, but the core of what uh, supports the indictment, that is public. The story by the fake electors, that's public. The committee laid all of that out for the American people. So I think it would be disingenuous for President Trump to claim that this is all going to be brand new. Yeah. And Glenn, let's talk about sort of the all the other trials. You know, when when uh, when Garrett said that Trump looked more comfortable now, I'm like, I'm not sure that's good. <laughs> you know, don't I don't think I would want to ever get comfortable with being indicted. You know, I would hope that would never happen more than once is like really bad. Right. Objectively bad. But just to put up, Donald Trump is facing the following. He's got the Trump civil fraud suit on uh, October in October. He's got the E. Jean Carroll civil defamation suit in January. He's got the New York state hush money trial in March. Then he's got the classified documents trial in May. And then we don't know when this trial is going to happen. So there's a lot on the docket. Alvin Bragg, D.A. Bragg, has signaled that he would be willing to not go first and that he would be willing to push his date if he had to to accommodate this case, which I think everyone would agree is the big one. How do you think the other that the presence of other cases that he has to also sit for could impact this case? Joy, any time I had a defendant who was facing trial in multiple cases, here is what would often happen. The defense team would appear before one judge and say, Judge, you know, we really don't have time to prepare for this case the way we need to, because you see, I have this other case. Then they would go before the other judge and they would say, Judge, you know, I, I really would like to set a, a trial date. But you see, I have this other case. I'm not accusing defense attorneys of doing anything improper, but boy, do they always play those angles. They play one case against the other. I'm going to say again, Joy, I think Donald Trump and his defense team have met their match in Judge Tanya Chutkin, because, you know, as we say in D.C., criminal justice circles, when a judge is tough, strong, no nonsense, and you can't put anything over on them, you know, Judge Chutkin don't play. She's already indicated there will be a trial date set 25 days from now. I have a feeling she may set it for January, February. That gives the defense team six months to prepare. I also have a feeling, as you mentioned, some of these other trials may get continued. They may kind of melt away or recede into the background, like Alvin Bragg's prosecution in New York, the E. Jean Carroll uh, second civil trial. These things may have a way of sort of clearing themselves up somehow, because I think, you know, most people recognize that Donald Trump needs to be tried. And the American people, when they go to the polls in November 2024, in the event Donald Trump is the Republican candidate, I think they should know, and I think mm -hmm. most of them would want to know, if they're voting for a convicted felon or they're voting somebody who has been completely exonerated at trial because apparently he did nothing wrong. I think this will probably now be the first case to go to trial involving Donald Trump. Yeah. And look, and he should want that, too, especially if he truly is not guilty of the crime. Uh, Andrew, to come back to you, because there is a, cer a certain set of a poetic justice to this in a way. We were talking about it a little earlier, is that, you know, as Alex Wagner brilliantly said tonight, the 
the foot soldiers have largely gone to prison. The middle, the middlemen, um, the Oath Keepers leaders and the Proud Boys leaders, straight to jail, mm-hmm. all convicted of seditious conspiracy. Trump isn't even charged with that. There is a poetic justice to the general having to face the same courtroom and the same process as them. And then there is, I think, in a world where we see blue collar folks Absolutely. go down hard for all kinds of crimes. Right. You shoplift, you do whatever you go down, drug, crime, whatever. Donald Trump is the ultimate white collar defendant with all the privileges and all, you know, but to see him humbled in this way, I think it is important for our criminal justice system to demonstrate that it can do that. Uh, I'm going to let you give your thoughts on it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that judges, good judges are very aware of that problem of a two tiered system and The idea that, I mean, this courthouse in particular has seen hundreds of cases along the lines you've talked about. And you now have this so-called white collar uh, defendant. You know what? That is what it means to have the rule of law. And, you know, I I spent most of my career prosecuting white collar defendants. You know, it's it's rare. Uh, It's, you know, it's harder. They have a huge army of people. Um, but the people who are against this, um, were they against all the other prosecutions? Everyone who attacked the Capitol, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys? No, of course not. I mean, everyone who has any sense looked at what happened that day in absolute horror as, in terms of what they were doing to those individual people and to the country. Um, and so, you know, this is what it means to have one tier That's of right. justice. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons that you heard about all these judges who were present, Um, because remember, all of those judges have those cases. They have seen all of that. And this is the person who was like the chief instigator, allegedly. Um, Obviously, all of these judges are committed to the rule of law, including that he has a right to due process and, and all of the procedures. But it also means that he can be held to account. Remember, a grand jury has voted this indictment Mm -hmm. means that average jurors have found that there is probable cause here. This is not Jack Smith. These are average people have decided that. And now it will remain to be seen Mm -hmm. whether they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The peaceful transfer of power is endemic to our system, right? It is what makes our system work. But equal justice under the law is the other big piece of it. And we need to prove that equal justice under law means that Donald Trump is now citizen Donald Trump and is treated just like any other citizen. If they can go down for crimes, so can he. And I think it was important and vindicating to the system today to see this happen. Glenn Kirshner, Andrew Weissman, Timmy Dio, Agongo Williams, thank you very much. Former January 6th Select Committee member Jamie Raskin joins me next. Stay right there. If key takeaways from Jack Smith's 45-page indictment sounded familiar, it's because many of those details were already presented to the American public through the January 6th committee. In a series of dramatic hearings, as well as an 800-page report, the committee made the case that Donald Trump was ultimately responsible for the insurrection. Congressman Jamie Raskin, one of its members, hailed the investigation for laying the groundwork for Trump's third indictment, calling it a tremendous vindication. He also firmly rejected Trump's free speech defense to the new charges, a view shared by none other than Trump's former attorney general and chief henchman, Bill Barr. 
as the indictment says, you know, he, he, they're, they're not attacking his First Amendment right. Uh, he can say whatever he wants. He can even lie. But uh, that does not protect you from entering into a conspiracy. All conspiracies involve speech and all fraud involves speech. So, uh, you know, free speech doesn't give you the right to engage in a fraudulent conspiracy. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin, who was the lead manager during Donald Trump's second impeachment and a member of the January 6th Select Committee. And Congressman, you are uniquely disposed, I think, to react to today because you did uh, lead the second impeachment, which was for what Donald Trump did on January 6th. And of course, you were involved in the January 6th committee. So I just want to get your just sort of basic reaction to the fact that today uh, did indeed happen, this arraignment. Well, it is a great vindication of the rule of law in American democracy. And I think um, that in this case, um, William Barr had it exactly right. Um, You know, there's no First Amendment right to engage in a conspiracy to overthrow an election, to engage in a conspiracy to uh, interfere with the federal proceeding. There's no First Amendment right to engage in a conspiracy to defraud the American people of an honest election or to violate their voting rights. Um, And uh, so I think the, the court, I think, will be able to sort that out, just like common sense tells us that you don't have a free speech right to overthrow the government. In fact, um, there are more than a half dozen different places in the Constitution itself which explicitly reject insurrection against the government. I mean, Congress has the power to call forth the militias in order to suppress insurrections and repel invasions and enforce the law. That's in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15. But, you know, it's all over the Constitution. In Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it says if you swear an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution and you violate it by engaging in insurrection or rebellion, you can never hold office again. So obviously, we have the right to defend our constitutional process. And that's what this prosecution is all about. And what do you think of, do you think that there is something sort of poetic about the fact that, a, a, you know, a provision of the Ku Klux Klan Act um, underlies one of the counts against Donald Trump? Well, and it really does go back to Reconstruction in the Civil War. Um, You know, Lincoln made a beautiful statement where he said that insurrection is an assault on the very first principle of democratic government, which is that the people get to choose their own leaders. Um, And so we had just engaged in a whole presidential election process through the complicated electoral college system. We had arrived at a solution. Joe Biden won by more than 7 million votes, 306 to 232 in the electoral college. And then, uh, you know, this mob shows up to say, no, we are going to take this in another direction. And Donald Trump was doing everything in his power to void out the legitimate election results and substitute them with counterfeit electors in a completely fraudulent process. So it was an attempt to perpetrate a fraud on the public. But fundamentally, it was an attempt to usurp the will of the people and violate everybody's voting rights and specifically to void out the votes of everybody who had cast ballots in Michigan, in Arizona, in Georgia, in Wisconsin, the states that they had targeted uh, for getting Mike Pence to just nullify the votes, to step outside of his constitutional role and say, I'm going to return these electors to those states or just anoint Donald Trump or kick it into the House of Representatives. I mean, there were different plans afoot, but all of them were attempts to drain 
um, the victory away from Joe Biden and overthrow the actual election result. You mentioned Mike Pence. He did not. He chose not to testify, refused to testify, in fact, before the January 6th committee. What did you make of the revelations that came in part from his contemporaneous notes, something we didn't know before the indictment um, and the statements he's made thereafter that have been much more open, I think, about what Donald Trump was trying to compel him to do? Yeah, and um, I did note that there were several uh, facts that were pled in the indictment relating to Mike Pence that we did not have access to because Pence chose not to testify uh, before a committee. Um, but Donald Trump was truly, clearly trying to coerce him into um, pulling a switcheroo. I mean, you know, transforming his purely ministerial administrative function at the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th into um, a substantive role in picking and choosing which electors were going to be admissible, according to him. And Pence, to his credit, said that has never been done. That's not the history of the country. That's not in the Constitution. And it would be utterly lawless. And um, I mean, he was saying that in effect, he issued a memorandum to that effect uh, on January 6th. Um, but of course, Trump didn't care about any of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he and his co-conspirators really thought that Pence could come to play the key role in overthrowing the legitimate electoral process. You know, it was sort of, uh, you know, sort of eerie in a sense that the courthouse uh, was so close to the scene of the crime, uh, the scene of the insurrection today. And that is where Donald Trump faced arraignment. Uh, but he, uh, you know, as of the last 24 hours, was still he's still making threats. Um, he has vowed retribution. Soon in 2024, he put on his uh, his truth social fake Twitter, uh, it will be our turn. And he is threatening very openly to indeed weaponize the government against the Biden family, against whoever his perceived enemies are, you know, effectively turning the country into a banana republic if he comes back. What do you make the, of the fact that he is undeterred even after three indictments the January 6th hearings, civil cases against him, he seems undeterred in terms of threatening um, to literally weaponize the government against his enemies if he's returned to the White House. And the fact that he's even so viable as a candidate on the Republican side. Well, um, I mean, you, you've got it. Uh, he's in full-blown autocratic dictatorial mode at this point. He's doing everything in his power to delegitimize the American justice system and the rule of law. I mean, for him, it's just about rival party teams or even just those who are loyal to him and those who are not. That is politics characteristic of a banana republic. Um, and, uh, you know, there are people all across the political spectrum who are rejecting what he's trying to do. But uh, it, it is uh, a very troubling sign that so many people in the Republican Party continue to follow his irredeemably and incorrigibly corrupt conduct with respect to uh, American constitutional law and our system of government. So that's a serious problem. Um, but we, um, you know, we know that the vast majority of the American people are on the side of the Constitution are on the side of upholding democratic institutions and are not going to fall for any of that and do not want to see a form of politics arise in America that's based on vendetta 
So he's entitled to the legal presumption of innocence like everybody else in America. He's entitled to due process like everybody else in America. There's a great judge sitting on his case who was a public defender, mm -hmm. who was a criminal defense lawyer, who will be very attentive to his rights. And he should have all of his rights. He can make all of his arguments. But fundamentally, the rule of law has got to be vindicated here. Um, I think we uh, all agree, uh, everyone watching this show agrees, that without the January 6th committee, we likely would not um, be here. There was a great reluctance at the FBI to uh, to do what is being done now by Jack Smith um, to have this happen. And so uh, we thank you. We thank the January 6th committee for all of your work. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you for being here. Much appreciated. And thank you, Troy. Cheers. And still ahead, there may be yet another, believe it or not, Trump indictment waiting in the wings. Atlanta journalist George Cheedy, who was subpoenaed to testify in the Fulton County Grand Jury investigation. This is a fascinating story. He joins me next. There's some people who say that there are already now three indictments against the former president. They argue that even if there were crimes committed here in Fulton County, a fourth indictment isn't worth all the work that would come with it. To people who say that, what would you say? That I took an oath and that the oath requires that I follow the law, that if someone broke the law in Fulton County, Georgia, um, that I have a duty to prosecute. And that's exactly what I plan to do. Anybody with black cousins knows that face that she just made. That was Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, earlier today. Now, we don't know much about what charges she may bring, but what we can gather is that Fonnie Willis is a very big proponent of using the state's Racketeer-Induced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, a statute that historically is associated with the prosecution of mafia figures. Georgia created its RICO statute in 1980 to go after street gangs and non-traditional conspiracies. Since Willis took off Office, the use of the Georgia RICO statute in Fulton County has multiplied. One of her high-profile indictments is Atlanta rapper Young Thug, who was arrested as part of a sprawling racketeering indictment alleging that he was the leader of a violent gang called Young Slime Life. Many are speculating that Trump and his allies could be charged under the same statute. That includes one of Atlanta's most prolific reporters, who, fascinatingly enough, has been drawn into the Trump probe. And he joins me now, George Cheedy, an Atlanta journalist who has gone from reporter to witness in Fonnie Willis's case against Donald Trump. Plenty, plenty, plenty to unpack here. Uh, great to meet you, Mr. Cheedy. So uh, Jahan Jones, who does the readout blog, is who hipped us to you. And tell us very briefly about your coverage, including of this young thug prosecution, just so people can understand your work. So I work on uh, criminal justice and journalism, and particularly how it connects to politics. Uh, so I've been working on a podcast for the last few months called um, King Slime, uh, and it's going to be about the YSL case and how RICO is applied in Fulton County. Um, it's been a wild ride, I have to tell you. The <laughs> court case itself is nuts. Yeah. But how then did you go from that? And you're a very prolific reporter and we, we know we internally know a lot more about you. How did you then end up pulled into the Trump and the fake electors case? Tell us that story. So in December of 2020, when the electors were meeting to do their vote, uh, I went to the Capitol, the state Capitol, because I wanted to observe that. And I was a little concerned that political extremists may try to disrupt it. Uh, as it happens, I recognized one of the Republican electors, one of the people who would have been an elector. Um, and he went into a room in the Capitol, and I thought that was curious. 
So I followed him in with my camera going, and lo and behold, I, you know, I entered the room where it was happening. Uh, the uh, Republican so-called electors were having their meeting right then, um, and they pretty quickly threw me out of the room. Uh, but before they did, they I asked what they were doing. They said it was an education meeting, and so they they were not truthful with me. And because of that, I've been subpoenaed to go and testify to that in front of the Trump grand jury here in Fulton County. There are so many interesting sort of parallels here. So in this case, um, the Young Thug case, how do you think that that RICO statute that's being used against him, which seems unusual to use it against a, a, a rapper, could apply to Donald Trump? So the racketeering law is essentially saying two people or more in a conspiracy that are engaged in an act that is illegal. And, you know, if you're a street gang that's engaged in illegal activity, as they accuse Young Thug and 27 other people of doing, like, from a legal perspective, it's it's almost exactly the same sort of thing. It is the same law that Donald Trump might be charged under. Um, it's the same people in Fonnie Willis's office that are investigating both that and, you know, gang crime in Atlanta. And based on your reporting on Fonnie Willis, would it surprise you if she didn't charge Donald Trump with racketeering or with some other crime? There's real there's a real question there. There's some speculation. And I don't want to get too deep into that because I'm a witness, which is awful. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) But I I will say that uh, when you look at the Michigan case. uh, Donald Trump wasn't charged, even though they charged the so-called fake electors there. And so maybe there's a parallel that will happen here. I think the distinction, though, is that there's a phone call to the secretary of state's office. And so the quality and quantity of the evidence here is a little different. Have you ever as a journalist been called as a witness in any case, in a case, you know, any case? Never, (laughs) never, ever. And under normal circumstances, I would never show up and and testify in front of a grand jury like the. The relationship between a journalist and power needs to be adversarial. I am not an agent of the government. If you want to know what I know, read what I am writing. Mm -hmm. The circumstances here are a little different because of the nature of what I'm being asked to testify to. Yeah. Yeah. The case. Just a little bit different. Uh, Atlanta journalist George T.D., I hope you will come back. Uh, This is a fascinating story. Thank you. Uh, Anytime. Cheers. We'll be right back. And that is tonight's readout. 